Hello and welcome to Read All About It, the podcast where people talk about their favourite and not-so-favourite books. Join me, Paul Cuddihy, as I take each guest on the literary journey of their life, from their most cherished childhood read and a book they'd recommend to anyone, to the book they couldn't be paid to read again, and much more in between. So listen, enjoy, subscribe and spread the word about the Read All About It podcast. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the Read All About It podcast. I'm delighted to be joined in this episode by Catherine Simpson, who is a novelist, a journalist, a poet and a short story writer who is based in Edinburgh. Catherine's debut novel, True Story, was published by Sandstone Press in 2015 and it tells the blackly comic tale of Alice, who is struggling to raise her son on the isolated farm he refuses to leave. Her son Sam has Asperger's and an inner world hidden from his parents. The novel was inspired by Catherine's experiences raising her daughter Nina, who is autistic, and Catherine and Nina have campaigned and continue to campaign for increased acceptance of autism. And in February 2019, Catherine's memoir, When I Had a Little Sister, was published by Fourth Estate. It is a story of grief, bereavement and mental illness, precipitated by the death of Catherine's younger sister, Tricia, who took her own life at the age of 46 in 2013. Catherine, thanks very much for joining me on the Read All About It podcast. It's my pleasure to be here. Thank you for inviting me. In terms of the two books that I mentioned, uh, one's a memoir and one's a novel, but very much grounded in your life and experiences. And even in your debut novel, was there a temptation at all to originally write that as a memoir? Or or what was it that made you decide to tell that story as a novel? No, when when I wrote True Story, I really wanted to explore the experience of having raised a child with autism um, because I felt as though I hadn't even processed the experience myself. But at that time, I would no way have dared to write a memoir. That would have been far too intimidating because somebody said to me the other day, how do you protect yourself from the nakedness of memoir? Because it is like dancing naked in public, writing a memoir. And I didn't have the courage or the experience to do that then. Um, So I decided to novelise the experience and and I wrote True Story. My daughter at that time was about probably about 15 or something like that. And to try to protect her uh, privacy, I changed the autistic child from a girl to a boy. And I wish I hadn't done that now because I feel that autistic girls don't get much publicity as much as boys do. But anyway, I did that in an attempt to um, highlight the fact that this was a novel. This wasn't my memoir. This was a novel. This was made up, uh, which did confuse people because it was called True Story. So I would say this is made up. This is a novel inspired by real life. And then they would say things to me like, but what did your husband think when you wrote about him like that? And I'd say, that's not my husband. No, but what did he think? So people couldn't really get their heads around the fact that I did have a daughter with autism, but that book is a novel and the characters in it are fictional. And how did your daughter, uh, how did she feel in terms of the depiction of the character in the novel when she read it? She was really supportive. She wouldn't read it until it was published because she said it had to be a book. It had to be in book form. So it was going to be a little bit late if she didn't approve of it. Fortunately, she really did, because Sam, the autistic character, comes across as very um, sympathetic. We're really rooting for him. He's very honest. He's very intelligent. But he's frightened of the outside world because he doesn't feel he fits in. And I think, as you know, lots of other autistic people have said to me that they can identify with that feeling of, you know, isolation and difference and being the other. And uh, so I think she I think she thought it was great that autism was being included in this story. And then we started to use it as a platform to campaign. And she was brilliant. 
I had no idea that she would take to campaigning in the way that she did. She could speak in front of a whole room full of people in a way that she couldn't speak one to one quite so easily. She just found it, she, she really found her element in the campaigning work and she's carried on doing it herself by herself now. So that's great. And I should say, I mentioned in the introduction that you're based in Edinburgh. But I think that the eagle-eared will recognise that that's not an Edinburgh accent you've got. <laughs> it certainly isn't an Edinburgh accent. I've been here 30 years, though. Um, I consider myself an adopted Scot, but I am from um, from Lancashire, and that's where True Story is set. That's based on a fictionalised version of the farm I was brought up on. And then, of course, my memoir is about growing up and my life in Lancashire with my two sisters. Everything that I... Well, not everything, but most of the things I write tend to be Lancashire based, about Lancashire people. Um, and I think it's just those formative years just seem to really um, fuel the writer. So maybe next time I'll have to branch out and set something in, in Scotland. I, I thought I was very brave when I was doing writing True Story. One of the characters is a Scot. And I was so worried about getting it wrong. Even though I've been here years and years, I got my husband to read all the dialogue out from this character and say, is that exactly how he would say it? And uh, yeah, I got a thumbs up. So It's interesting there that you mentioned there that you write stories based in the area you grew up. But also even, we you know, when we start to get through the books that you've chosen, quite a lot of them seem to have links with either your upbringing or where you're from. And it's interesting to see what you've chosen and why. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I think so. Um, I quite surprised myself with these choices, actually, and I really gave it a lot of thought. And my initial thoughts weren't actually what I ended up writing down, but I'm really pleased with the choices that I've made anyway. Well, I have to say for anyone listening, but particularly for anyone who's listening who might be a future guest, you've set a benchmark in terms of, uh, because normally people send me the book, the title and the author, and then I'll, I'll go and have a look at it, particularly if I don't recognise the book, find out a wee bit about the book and maybe the author. But you've done half my research for me by giving me a synopsis for each of them. So I really appreciate that. <laughs> in terms of the podcast, the first book I've got guests to talk about is their favourite book from childhood. And the book that you've chosen in this category is Tom's Midnight Garden by Philippa Pierce. Yeah, I read this, I think I read it at school, um, probably in the first year of high school or something, probably about the age of 12 or 13 originally, and absolutely loved it. I just fell in love with this idea that this young boy, Tom, is sent away to an aunt's house in, uh, because he's in quarantine from the measles, uh, which was a very exotic thing to think of in, in when I was growing up because there was no such thing as quarantine, really. This book is set in the sort of the 1950s. He gets sent away to his aunt's uh, in quarantine to discover that she has a grandfather clock that strikes 13. And if he goes downstairs when the clock strikes 13 at midnight, he will discover an Edwardian garden outside. And it's the beautiful garden that belonged to that building when that building was a country house. And in the garden, he has the ability to go through walls. And so to me, this was just utterly magical. And I think another reason why I found it so magical was that I was brought up in I was being brought up at that time in the farmhouse where I was born where my father was born and where his parents moved in 1925 and it really felt as though the past was with me all the time you know there was my dad's writing on the walls from when he was a boy there was um, you know the belongings of my grandmother still in the cupboard um, so it, it really, so this idea that this boy could go back in time and see the past was just so fascinating to me. So I'd recommend it, and to adults, I just think it's a great read. 
when you sent me through your choices, you mentioned rereading the book. Uh, that's when you realised what part the appeal was because of the family. And when did you reread it? Um, I read it for this. I got all my old childhood books off the shelves and I was leafing through them. And, and I just thought, oh, I really want to reread that one. So I reread it last week. And I loved it even more, I think, than I did the first time. I think that I've been surprised by how the book changes when you change. And now I think I'm I'm seeing why I love that book has made it really fascinating. The fact that this boy can go walk back into the past, which is a bit like what I was doing when I was writing my memoir, because I go back over two or three generations to talk about how our family ended up the way it did. So to for Tom to be able to just walk back and see everything um, in this Edwardian garden was just fascinating and magical to me. Because I always wonder, and again, I've talked to all the other people about this, you know, whether it's a danger or a worry, if it's a book that you love so much from your childhood and it means so much to you, you know, there's maybe a slight trepidation when you pick it up as an adult many years later. Because obviously you're reading it from a totally different experience and perspective, but you still want to love it because of those memories. Absolutely, because I tried to read The Famous Five to my children. They're now 22 and 25, but when they were young, I tried to read Famous Five to them and they just had not stood the test of time. They actually refused to listen to them. They just said they were boring. So, And that is sad because they meant such a lot to me, but I, I could see what they meant. They, they just hadn't stood the test of time. Whereas when I was choosing Tom's Midnight Garden, I reread some of Little Women, which I still love. I still love it and I still love the characters in it, but I'm not sure I'd particularly want to keep rereading it. Anne of Green Gables, I read some of that again. What a fantastic book. So witty and dry and there's actually stuff in it, you know, for adults to really enjoy. So, yeah, the books change as we change. It's interesting as well, you know, you mentioned that it was the winner of the Carnegie Prize back in 1958, the medal that was given to the, the best children's book. And in 2007, uh, that was the 70th anniversary of the prize and that book was named in the top 10. Then they put it to a public vote, and I think it came second only to Northern Lights, which was Philip Pullman's novel. And you would expect it, you know that, because that book's more contemporary. But even he said, uh, Philip Pullman said, that he thought in 50 years' time, if there was another vote, Tom's Midnight Garden would be voted above it. Even just the fact that, you know, like 50 years later, it's still so highly regarded, that tells you everything you need to know about it. It does. I didn't know that, actually. I didn't know about that vote of votes. I'm not surprised, actually. I'm not surprised. I think anybody could love that book. Yeah, my children loved it too. I read it to them and they loved it too when they were young. Brilliant. And what age would you have been when you first read the book? I was probably about 12 when I read it, but younger children could read the book. I mean, you know, or, or have it read to them. There's nothing in there that's particularly frightening or anything. Yeah, it's great. It's all, it's all about loss and about the inevitability of time passing. I mean, it's quite poignant. It's a very poignant story. And, it's, you know, it's, all, it's about, you know, the connection between generations as well. Yeah, definitely read it, everybody. You know, it's interesting there, you know, as well, you mentioned that you read it to your children. And again, you know, when I've spoken to some of the guests, particularly with their childhood book, quite often it's a book where the first time they've experienced it was when their parents read it to them. And the whole experience, you know, of that shared experience of your mum and dad reading to you, that's what stays with you. Yeah, my parents didn't read books to me. I've never, I never had a story read to me at all. My parents didn't read books. There were very few books in the house. So the books that I did have, I really, really treasured them and read them over and over and over. And a lot of the books that I loved as a child, I don't have because I read them as library books or borrowed books. So I've got a very small library of children's books, which I really, I still treasure. And in fact, the Thomas Midnight Garden book, which I reread, 
somebody had signed it uh, a friend had given it to me for my 20th birthday so it wasn't actually the copy that I read when I was 12 it had been given to me on my 20th birthday by somebody who knew that I loved it so yeah I I enjoyed reading to my children very much but uh, my parents didn't um, have the time or the inclination for that they were farmers they were busy well I'm glad that as an adult you've reread it and still loved it in terms of the next book that you've chosen, which is your, you know, your favourite teenage formative book, the one that you've chosen is The Country Girls by Edna O'Brien. Before I did A-level English literature when I was 17, my reading was pretty unguided and I just went to the library and I chose a book because I liked the cover or I chose a book because it was a familiar name like uh, Agatha Christie, P.G. Woodhouse or Catherine Cookson. I read all everything that they wrote. Other than that, I didn't really know what what to read. So I would read some of the classics because they were familiar and this sort of thing. But when I went to do A-level, uh, my teacher introduced me to Edinburgh O'Brien. And it was, I would say it was an electrifying experience because suddenly I was reading about a 14-year-old girl uh, in a modern setting. It felt modern. I mean, I was reading this in the early 80s. It's actually set in the 50s. Um, it felt modern to me. Um, a young girl going through all kinds of things that I could relate to. Um, she was being raised on a farm. Um, it was freezing cold. You know, she was getting dressed on the freezing cold lino, walking to school, um, you know, being um, overawed by the other bigger, more confident girls. And just the way that Edna O'Brien wrote about this experience, I could suddenly see myself being reflected back to me as opposed to using books as escape. I think previously books had been an escape for me, whereas now I suddenly thought that they were a way of investigating your own life through these fictional characters. I reread this book as well this week because I knew we would be talking about it. Yeah. I'm conscientious, if nothing else. Yeah. <laughs> and I was really surprised by this book because, again, I loved it. I love the way she writes. I think it's brilliant. Um, and she gets the young girl's vulnerability and this feeling that you're always a bit of a misfit when you're 14, 15. But what I hadn't remembered was the predatory men in it. And when I read this in the early 80s, very early 80s, I think I was so used to that kind of behaviour, being normal and being normalised, that it didn't strike me that this person who she falls in love with, who she refers to as Mr Gentleman, and she describes it, she's 14, and she describes him as having grey hair and a wife. I, I didn't strike me that this was a terrible grooming relationship. And he says to her, this Mr Gentleman says to uh, the, the narrator, oh, men prefer to kiss young girls without lipstick. And to me, that didn't sound like a creepy, hideous, grooming kind of thing. I took it as a straightforward, rather quirky love story. Do you know, when you hear that now, it's actually, you know, it's almost like a sharp intake of breath, because that's, that's a shocking sentence. I know, it's shocking. <laughs> and it is shocking. It's, it's, it's a depiction of a girl being groomed, which I didn't realise when I read it. I think the book was actually banned in Ireland originally. I'm not sure if she had moved to London. And then the book came out, and when it hit the shelves in Ireland, I think there was, you know, obviously back in Ireland, back in the 1950s, would have been very repressive and very conservative Catholicism. And so I think that book and that depiction and those sort of things, I think the reaction was then not to see a mirror held up to your own society, but to ban the book so that nobody else could see what was being said. Yeah, I can imagine it being very shocking to people who understood what, what was actually being depicted. What amazes me is that at 17, I didn't see that. I just focused on the things that I really related to. 
which were the fact that this young girl was embarrassed by her family, you know, very self-conscious when visitors came round, always thinking that everybody else was so much more sophisticated than she was, longing to be anywhere else except on the farm, you know, not being able to wait to get to the big city, all this sort of thing. But I still enjoy, I, I really enjoyed reading it again, but it was a different book and a different experience. You know, it's interesting on that point of, you know, reading a book at a time and then rereading it and being shocked. And I was actually listening to Helen Fielding, who wrote the Bridget Jones diary books, and she was on Desert Island Discs. And she actually said that when she reread her book, she was slightly shocked, almost at her own text, because, you know, that environment that her character had experienced when the book first came out, you know, that kind of acceptable sexism or, or the sexism which was tolerated or had to be tolerated by women in the workplace. She said that, you know, A, I couldn't write that book now, but B, the sort of things that the characters, that the male characters did, now they wouldn't be accepted at all. That's progression, obviously, but she was even shocked because it was like a reflection on a society that she'd been working in. Yeah, I think, I mean, I'm constantly amazed when I go back and look at, uh, you know, comedy shows or uh, situation comedies, that sort of thing from the 70s and 80s. The stuff that we just took for granted. Yeah. Um, And it it was reflected in people's behaviour every day and in the workplace. When I first got, went to work, uh, when I first joined the civil service, I was 19. There was porn, there was porn on the walls really hardcore porn posters on the walls because it was a very male-dominated department that I was in and you were just expected to um, tolerate it. That was what it was, you know, you wanted to work there, so you put up with it. I mean, that's extraordinary and that's not really that long ago. I mean, it's good that things, you know, have changed, obviously, you know, for the next generation, for our daughters to be working because obviously you wouldn't want them to be working in that environment. Oh, God, no, no. No, I know. Thank, thank goodness things have changed. They haven't changed enough, obviously, but things have changed from when I was a young girl. At least now, I think people would speak up, I hope, particularly after the Me Too movement. Maybe people would have the um, confidence to speak up about it, which we, I, I certainly never did. And to be fair, you, you can understand that in, in such an intimidating environment as well. And you you're desperate to be accepted. Yeah, you yeah. want to be accepted and be part of the team. So you just kind of do what you had to do sort of thing. But no, not healthy. In terms of the Country Girls, it's part of the trilogy that Edna O'Brien wrote. Did you read the other two books in the trilogy as well? Yeah, The Girl with Green Eyes and Girls in Their Married Bliss. I haven't read those two. I'm, I'm going to go back and read them, though, having read The Country Girls again. Um, yes, I did. I did. But I can't really remember. I can't really remember what happened in them. I just remember loving the world that she created, you know, and the way she described how they felt about things. So I'm going to go back and I'll enjoy reading them again. What I think is extraordinary about her, and I think she's she's about 89 now, is that she's still writing, and she brought out a book last year called Girl, and it's all to do with the, the girls, you know, who were, were kidnapped from the school by Boko Haram in Nigeria. So she's very contemporary as well. Absolutely. That's amazing, isn't it? I mean, I hope I can still be writing when I'm 89. I didn't start until I was 50, so I've got an awful lot of catching <laughs> up to do. <laughs> Well, you're listening to the Read All About It podcast with me, Paul Cuddy, and my guest, the writer, Catherine Simpson. And we're on to your third book choice, Catherine, and that's a book that you'd recommend to anyone. And the book you've chosen is This Is Not About Me by Janice Galloway. 
Yeah, this is uh, this is absolutely superb uh, memoir written by Janice Galloway, um, who is also a novelist, a poet and librettist. She's multi, multi-talented, but um, she's written two volumes of memoir. This is not about me and making it. Is it making it all up? I can't remember what the second volume's called, but I've just reread the first one. This is not about me. And it was as wonderful as I remembered it. The first line is, this is my family. This is my family. And anything that talks about family dynamics fascinates me. Anything about mother-daughter relationships, sibling relationships, father-daughter relationships, it's all interesting to me. And Janice does it so well. So she's writing about being, well, her mother said that she thought she was the menopause. So her mother didn't realise she was giving birth to Janice until she got to the hospital. So she was brought up obviously much, much younger than her sister. And But then her sister comes back to live with the family when Janice is about four. And the sister, Cora, is incredibly dominating and domineering and is one of the best characters to read about. You would not want to live with her. You would not want to live in a one-room attic, which is where they were living at the time. But you definitely want to read about her because she's just so fascinating. So we've got the domineering sister, we've got the overworked mother, and we've got the alcoholic father, which, as you can imagine, create this combustible atmosphere in which Janice was being brought up. So you read about this child surviving in, in and, and thriving, actually, in this environment. And it just makes you think, you know, from that to being one of the best writers in the country, you know, it's incredible, you know, how people can survive and thrive despite the most difficult of beginnings. Obviously, you've written your own memoir, but had you read memoirs before then? And is it, is it something you've subsequently focused on or, or read more in that genre? Both. I've, I've, I love memoir. I think it's absolutely fascinating. The fact that people are willing to share their details of certain aspects of their life with you, I just think is, it is an act of generosity, I think. And I think, you know, yeah, tell me all about your life. That's brilliant. Um, so, I mean, Toast by Nigel Slater is one of my favourite memoirs. Running with Scissors by Augustine Burroughs. Oh, I, I've got so many on my shelves all behind me. I can't think of their names, but I just love memoir. And uh, And then I wrote one. And then that made me even more fascinated by them because I was then going back and thinking, you know, well, how did they do that? Where did they start? Where did they finish? What was the particular lens that they were telling the story through? Because my memoir is told through the lens of my sister's death by suicide. And so that's what I start with. And then I go back and I look at my family and try and work out how the story came to the end that it did, my sister's story. Um, so all memoirs are looking at a life through a different lens. And um, yeah, I highly recommend memoir um, reading. I think it's so great to see how other people have survived through the most difficult circumstances. I get quite a lot of memoirs sent to me now to read uh, because I've written one. And um, I, I run out of words, actually, to describe how good some of them are. You can't, you know, you keep saying Brill a brilliant read. I'd recommend it to everybody. But you have to keep coming up with different ways of saying that because there's so much good memoir being written. That's obviously in terms of you as a reader, but as a writer, is there a difficulty because you, you know, you're obviously bearing your soul a bit, but not only for yourself, there are other family members and it'll have an impact on them. Although you're telling your story from your perspective, it will still, you know, it will still affect other people who are involved in the story. Yeah, absolutely. I once asked a well-known uh, memoir writer how she went about writing a memoir about her mother and her sister. And she said to me, I waited until they were dead. I know what she means, that 
you are in writing your own story you are also writing the story of other people you can't avoid that and um, of course my sister had died uh, my mother had died my father was still alive and my older sister was still alive of, of my nuclear family so I said to my older sister my surviving sister did she what did she think about me writing this memoir and she said yes I think you should tell the story and then when I'd written a manuscript I let her read it and she said yes it was like that I think if I hadn't had her support, the whole thing would have been very difficult. Other than that, out with the immediate family, I kind of think, well, you know, it's my story and I have the right to tell it. As I would say that to anybody, and everybody's got a story and everybody's got the right to tell it. I suppose I always wonder, you know, is that two steps? You know, one is, is that validation or approval from siblings or other family members? The other aspect I you know, always imagine is you still have to take that step of letting the world see it because it's still so personal to you and then you're sharing it with the world. Oh, it is absolutely terrifying. It, it really was terrifying. When I could see the uh, publication date getting nearer and nearer, I began to think I've made a terrible mistake. Uh, I was actually thinking, lying in bed at night, thinking, can I pull the plug on this? Can we stop this happening? But of course, it, you know, it was in the process of being published. And um, then the week end before it was published, my publisher said, there's probably going to be a review in the Sunday Times. And I thought, how am I going to bear waiting for this? Because I didn't know what it was going to say, obviously. And then I realised it was probably online. So I looked up online at four o'clock in the morning on that Sunday morning. And uh, there was a paywall on it and I couldn't get past the paywall. But all I could see was in this superb memoir. So I thought, it's all right. Yeah. People people understand what I'm doing. And then I managed to get behind the paywall and it referred to my bonkers ancestors. And I thought, <laughs> oh, God, my ancestors have been called bonkers in the Sunday Times. But that was all right because they got it. They, they understood what I was doing and they saw that although I've tried to be honest, I was as honest as I could be. It's also compassionate and um, caring and loving even though some of it's quite difficult and um, dark. It kind of walks the line between light and dark. And I feel I felt as though I got that line right, and that's what I was worried about. And I guess the, the terrifying aspect must be pre-publication, but post-publication, with the response you get, not only from the critics, but from readers, uh, maybe more importantly, I suppose, I'm guessing there's a sort of relief. Oh, it, the response that I've had, I was really worried about this because I thought people might say, you know, you're using you're using your family, you know, to, you know, for your career or something like that. Uh, I, might, I didn't know what people were going to say. I thought they might be very ungenerous, but they haven't been. It's not happened at all, not once, which actually I find remarkable. Um, but not only has that not happened, I've had the opposite. I've had people getting in touch saying, you've, you make me feel seen, you make me feel heard, you've told my story. I've never seen my story before, but now it's here. Uh, you've made me feel less alone. I've had so many messages like that that have made me think, it was worth every moment of worry and doubt beforehand. And with True Story, this, the novelised version of bringing up an autistic child, I quite recently got a message from a lady who said, I'm sitting in a cafe crying. I've got your book here and it describes in True Story what, how isolating it is to have a child with autism who doesn't seem to be able to fit in to the world. And this lady said, and I'm just going to go into a medical appointment and I'm taking this book with me and I'm going to read this page to them to tell them how I feel. And that just made me think, well, that even if nothing else, that's worth writing the book for that. I mean, that is incredible. You know, the fact that your words have that effect in some days is just amazing. 
I feel really lucky, actually, that because um, I didn't start writing till I was uh, I, I went to do an MA when I was 45. I did the Open University, I did an MA, did some studying. And then I got an agent when I was 50 and I wrote my first novel when I was 51. And then the me- uh, memoir when I was 54, 53, 54. And um, so, you know, I could have missed out on this opportunity completely. I mean, I thought I had. I thought I'd missed out on wanting to be. I wanted to be a writer all my life, but it just seems so unrealistic. So to suddenly realise that you haven't missed out and that you've, you know, you're making a certain amount of success of it is really quite incredible. So what was the catalyst if you you've always harbored dreams of becoming a writer but you know what was the catalyst to take that next step and actually pursue that dream well it was it was kind of a, a, um, a combination of things which i think often things are my uncle died and left me a little bit of money and i wanted to spend it on something significant so i um and then a friend walked into my house and said i've signed up for a creative writing course and i thought that's me that's that's what I should be doing so I spent my uncle's money on the Open University in the MA at Napier and I think he would be it was just four thousand pounds and that paid for everything that paid for all that education over I think four years and best money I've ever spent and uh, so it was it was kind of that and my, my oh and also uh, because Nina was autistic and I was kind of trapped at home a little bit because there was endless problems with the schooling. So they kept phoning me and phoning me. And I felt as though I couldn't really go out. And I was a journalist, but it was really hard to get out and do any work unless my husband stayed at home. So to be able to study creative writing and write at home was something that I could do constructively with my time as well. So the fates came together, really. I suppose, too, there'd been a a slight trepidation going back to higher education when you're a bit older, you know, because things move on, even in terms of how subjects are taught. And, you know, I, I suppose you have to take that leap of faith. Oh, absolutely. I mean, we, we were, you know, using computers <laughs> and having group chats in computers and submitting things online and all things that, all the, you know, young people would absolutely not even know there was an alternative to that, but were quite intimidating to me. Yeah, it, it was. And, and if you've had a dream, it's quite safe if you keep it as a dream uh, because it, you can't fail. But then when you decide to do something about your dream and you decide, well, I'm going to try this and see if I can write, there was a very great chance that I could just crash and burn and discover that actually I couldn't do it at all. Nobody wanted to read anything that I'd written. And that would have been quite devastating, having had that dream all those years. So it was a massive risk, yeah. which um, paid off. I also think for, you know, for Andy who's listening to this podcast, but you know, because obviously people when they're younger and you have those dreams and ambitions of what you want to do, also the fact that maybe people who have wanted to be writers and have got into their, their 30s or their 40s or 50s, and for some reason it hasn't happened. But actually, it's, it's never too late because there's always that chance of you focusing on it and it can always happen. It's never too late because we're fortunate, the people who want to be writers, that it is something that you can do at any age. And I do feel you get more and more material as you get older. You know, I, I do think you probably get better. You know, you, well, you're not going to get worse as you get older, I don't think. So you've got every chance. Um, I mean, fortunately, I didn't want to be a ballet dancer or, a, you know, a <laughs> jockey or else it would have been really disappointing. <laughs> In terms of the podcast, we're on to the fourth question now. And that's a book that you couldn't be paid to read again. And it's more of a genre, I suppose, of what you've called bodice rippers that you couldn't be paid to revisit. No, I, absolutely not. No. There's a couple, well, one in particular that I remember called Sweet Savage Love by uh, Rosemary Rogers. It was at this time where I don't know where I was getting these books from. There was maybe the local bookshop or something had a little section of these bodice rippers. 
they were basically what I thought of them. I thought that they were adventure books. I thought that they were romantic adventures of people being swept up on horseback, being riding across the pampas and all that sort of thing. And then looking back on it, I think, actually, this was about rape and, and kidnap and um, abuse. And it, actually, they're pretty horrible. I don't, I mean, I haven't read it again. I haven't gone back to it. I wouldn't go back to it. But um, just in what I remember of them, they were wholly inappropriate for a 14-year-old. But there I was reading them, passing them around the entire class. Half the people's mothers were reading it as well. They all thought it was marvellous too. It was a very strange time in the 1970s, I do think. Because the other one that we were all reading was um, Flowers in the Attic by Virginia Andrews, I think it is. Virginia Andrews, which was about four children locked up in an attic and a brother and a sister fall in love. And it's about how these, these imprisoned children fall in love with each other in an incestuous relationship. Bizarre. I mean, that's bizarre. But that's what all the young girls were reading in the early seven, in the mid-70s. Because Flowers in the Attic was an absolutely massive book at the time. And huge. I think everybody had a copy. Funnily enough, I kept all my books because I really, really value all my books. But the books that I can't find are Flowers in the Attic and, and Sweet Savage Love. I've discarded them along the way. I've, I've, I've got, or somebody's taken them, I don't know, but I don't own them anymore. But I was looking on um, Amazon and Goodreads at, at the Sweet Savage Love reviews. And it's funny because it's still very popular, that book. People going, oh, the romance, the, the, the adventure, the love, the passion, the desire and uh, all this sort of thing. And then every now and again, somebody will come in saying, this is just about rape. <laughs> you know, so there's very much two schools of thought about that book. Do you think maybe in a few years time, you know, when people are doing something similar to this and, you know, maybe something like Fifty Shades of Grey books, you know, might fall into that same category because they've been phenomenally successful. But then... Maybe in retrospect, people might say, well, wait a minute. Yeah, what was, what was this collective madness? I can't really comment on Fifty Shades because I just haven't read it. I read some extracts and I couldn't work out if they were actually spoof extracts or not. But people tell me that they were real extracts. But So I can't really comment on that book. But yes, there was some kind of collective madness around that Fifty Shades thing. You know, I, had a, I had a surreal experience when we were going on holiday one year with friends and just the way the seats were on the plane, I was sitting in the middle seat. My wife was on one side of me and her friend was on the other side. <laughs> the two of them were both sitting, reading Fifty Shades of Grey while I was sitting in the middle and I thought, this is a bit strange. <laughs> Did you feel safe? <laughs> I mean, it, it's not a book I've read. Uh, I mean, at the time it was a phenomenon and it's and it, it did feel like everybody had a sense that they had to read it, but I, I really couldn't tell you anything about it. I've never watched, watched the films either. No, couldn't be bothered with that. You mentioned a couple of times there that you've kept the books that mean something to you for sentimental reasons. You know, I wonder as well, because it's more than just the words of the story, because you know that actually having that physical copy takes you back to whatever time you were reading the book and it connects you to that time and place and I suppose also to you at that particular age. Oh, absolutely. The covers. It's the covers on the books. They've got to be the original covers on the books. And the little um, dedications, sometimes people have given you them as gifts and have signed them, or maybe you've underlined bits. I love a bit of marginalia. You know, if people put comments in books, that's great. I love it. That adds to the book as far as I'm concerned. So, yeah, the physical books, they can make me feel so happy just looking at even the famous five, which I say hasn't stood the test of time. But just looking at those covers reminds me of just how how much of a wonderful escape they were at the time. I would never get rid. When I met my husband, he had his set of famous five and I had my set of famous five. <laughs> he had to get rid of his. I kept mine. <laughs> that was the same that you were going to be in charge. <laughs> 
Because it's funny, I, I always remember being at college and that was the first time I saw people taking notes in the book and uh, I never write in a book and I don't really, you know, sometimes, particularly if you pick up second-hand handbooks and you'll see people have made notes and stuff, I'm not a fan. Oh no, that'd add something to me. Bit of highlighting, turned over corners, all that sort of thing. It's just adding a bit more life to the book. I, mean, I don't I don't mind that way if you know somebody's put their name and the date. I don't mind that, you know, if it's you know, they said Catherine Simpson, nineteen seventy two or whatever. I'm okay with that because then you, your imagination can start to think about who old the book is and who that person was, you know, but once they start scribbling notes in the book, nah, that's not for me. No, there used to be a book called, um, was it The Rats by James Herbert? I think yeah, it was. Yeah. Um, my friend was reading it at, at school and uh, I think it must have been, that was obviously a second-hand copy. And it, she got to one page and there was a sex scene on it and then it said, more sex on page 64. And I thought, well, that's <laughs> so helpful. Obviously somebody thinking forward to other readers. We are on to your last book choice of the podcast, Catherine, and that is either a book you've just read or one that you're currently reading. And the book that you've chosen is a book called Superior, The Return of Race Science by Angela Saini. Well, this is a book that um, that is published by Fourth Estate, which is the same publisher that published my memoir. And I think it was a day or two after the George Floyd murder, when people were trying to contribute positively to the ever-growing debate, if we can call it that, about what on earth was going on. And so Fourth Estate made this book available free as part of something useful that they could do. So I got it on my Kindle and um, I'm just reading it now. And basically what it's about is um, how uh, science has been co-opted at times to shore up racist views and racism and in fact invent racism actually. I mean, in Edwardian times, apparently there were human zoos in the West. There was one in Paris for a time. I think we had odd examples in this country of travelling um, shows and things where people came to so, so-called study other types of being. We thought of people who looked differently to us as being a different species from us. And then they tried to build a science around this. They tried to build a science, the race science, to show how some people were innately superior to others, how some people were innately uh, more intelligent or whatever than other um, human beings. And to read it all and to have it all spelled out in this way, you know, that the race science then became eugenics and people started talking about breeding out the, uh, you know, the inferior people. And then, of course, the Nazis came and really tried to um, turn it into a science. So we kind of think that that's gone. But in fact, there are still people out there still working, still publishing papers, trying to have some intellectual backup to their racist views. And I just think that's really, really fascinating how we try to intellectualise um, hatred. Do you know that? Because that's what scares me. And again, you know, when I was just having a look at the synopsis of the book and what it's trying to explain and what scares me in the current climate is two things. One is that, you know, social media allows a, an echo chamber for people to express these views and, and think they're not alone. Because I, I I think in the past, you felt that it was on the wane because people have been isolated and suddenly people are emboldened because they feel their safety in numbers. And secondly, circumstances have changed here, you know, in the United States. And it's almost allowing a platform where in, you know, the post-Brexit world in the UK, for example, it seems like people feel that it's acceptable to express racist views and somehow it's okay because it's been endorsed at the highest level. And for me, that's what's really scary. It's it's terrifying and it's depressing and you like to think that the world's getting better but as you say you only have to look on social media to realise 
that that's a bit naive to think that and yeah it makes me despair really I, I try to I try to learn all the time about why the world is the way it is I mean I, I, I learn a lot on Twitter to be fair to Twitter I do I read some really interesting threads by people who are campaigning about all kinds of issues racism trans issues uh, sexism you know misogyny all kinds of really interesting threads but then if you really want to consider deeply, you then I go and go and find a book about it and I'll read, you know, I'll read about it that way. I read a book last week called Down Girl, which was about misogyny and it was pulling it all apart and dissecting it and trying to explain what exactly was happening. You know, why did some people treat women as lesser? Um, and I just think it's really fascinating to try to understand what's going on in the background of, of systems that we just take for granted. I remember watching a film, uh, it was a documentary called 13th, which is about racism in the United States post the abolition of slavery. And it's to do with the, the 13th Amendment and how basically that was used effectively to keep slavery going in the United States through jailing lots of African-Americans who were then allowed to be used basically as slaves still. And it takes it right up to the 21st century and kind of stops you in your tracks when you watch it. Yeah, that's that's extraordinary. I've read about that um, about that as well, and it is it's just absolutely extraordinary what's actually going on. And we're so privileged that you know that it's not affecting us directly. So, uh, but that's no excuse at all not to find out what's going on in other people's lives, which is fascinating anyway, as well as being educational. I read a book last week about somebody who was born a boy and transitioned to a girl, but then decided to identify as non-binary. And that's all just really fascinating, you know. You know, I can't begin to put myself in somebody's shoes who's gone through that experience without reading. You know, I need to read how they describe their experiences, and it's just fascinating. I think books are just that for me. That books are everything. I read every single day, and I can't imagine a life not having access to books and ideas and other people's worldviews. I was looking again, just researching on Angela Saini. And- it was Prospect magazine earlier this year. They named her as one of the world's top 50 thinkers, which is impressive in itself, even before you read the books, because I think to have reached that level where people regard your opinions that way, you know, it is just so impressive. That bit, That's amazing, isn't it? Yeah, that'd be quite terrifying. You'd have to keep coming up with amazing ideas, <laughs> being continue to be an amazing thinker. No, that is very, very impressive. You mentioned there that you, you read every day and you can't imagine a life without books. One of the things I'm always curious about, you know, particularly talking to people who have kids, I don't know if your kids read or have read into adulthood. It's really odd because they always say, oh, you must read to your children. This is what will give them a love of books, you know, blah, blah, blah. My parents never read to me. I adore books, etc. I always read to my children and they don't read for pleasure now. And my elder daughter did read for pleasure until she went to university. And then she found the whole university experience so stressful that she has never read for pleasure since she left. And that's now three years, which is really sad. And I'm hoping that that situation can change. And my younger daughter um, gets her stories from films, podcasts, uh, television. Uh, she gets the stories that way and um, things online, articles and things like that, not books. They don't yeah. read books. I, I never thought that I would have children that didn't read books. It's funny because I've got three kids. Um, my oldest daughter reads occasionally. My other daughter, who is the middle child, she reads voraciously and she always has. And my son, who is the youngest, does not read at all. I've told this story before uh, on the podcast where you know, when I got my first novel published, I gave them all their own individual copy. And then about two weeks later, my son came downstairs and he said, 
dad, I'm not going to read your book. And I went, well, okay. And he said, books are not for me. I'm just going to wait until the film comes out. <laughs> He's a bit like your youngest daughter. He watches a lot of Netflix. He watches a lot of documentaries. So we'll have conversations about a whole variety of subjects and he'll have got his information from watching TV. And I'm absolutely fine with that because my love of books is my love of books. And the books are always there anyway. And if that's not what he chooses to do, I have no problem with that. I know some people, I know people who, you know, the idea that their kids are not voracious readers horrifies them, but it doesn't bother me at all. No, I, I get what you mean, that you can have fantastic conversations with young people about all kinds of um, subject matters, and they've got their information in a different way than you've got yours, and that's fine. I, I think what I feel sad about with my older daughter is that she did love reading, and that it was the education system that put her off. I, I, I think that's a bit sad. Um, and maybe she'll get over it maybe she won't but my younger daughter no she just she's really interested in the world but she gets her information like you say from documentaries and and so on i mean in terms of your oldest daughter uh, i found that talking to a few of the guests in the podcast it's interesting that the book that they've often chosen is the one they couldn't be paid to read again is it can be linked to their education that you know it's maybe a book they've had to study so i think maybe the longer the distance is from university if she's loved books before, the chances are at some point she'll come back to it. It may just be, you know, one book that triggers it and then that's her again. It could be. I'm, I'm really hoping so. She, I think she associates reading books with being depressed. Right. And that's become, that's become a link in her mind. So, yeah, it's a bit sad. That's a bit sad. In terms of your own writing, you, you mentioned that you didn't start writing until recent years. So you've written a, a novel, you've written a memoir. What is it you're working on just now? Well, I've been doing some shorter things. I've got, um, I've been writing a poem for an anthology and an essay for another anthology, and I'm working on some more memoir. Whether I can make that work or not, I don't know. But um, so that's the longer piece that I'm working on at the moment. I find memoir quite addictive, actually, because you start learning so much about yourself and about your family and about how things have worked out. So it is, it is quite addictive, actually. It's funny, I was doing some bits and bobs of memoir writing, and I haven't done anything about it, but one of the things I did is I wanted to speak to my dad, kind of about his faith, about his faith growing up and what he passed on to us, me and my sisters. And we actually just sat one day and interviewed him and just we ended up just having a chat. And it was fascinating because some of the things he was telling me about growing up, about my gran, about my uncles and aunts, and also about himself, I'd never heard before. And afterwards, when I was listening back through to the interview, I thought, do you know, even if I don't do anything with it, it was just a wonderful experience. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I, I think that is one of the best things, actually, about memoir writing, that it, it gives you the opportunity to ask all these questions because you can say, well, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm writing, you know, I'm researching for, uh, you know. And so you ask, you find out all kinds of things. And, you know, once these once, you know, my dad's 94 now, he won't be here forever. And once he's gone, all those stories have gone. All those photographs, nobody will know who they are it's just gone all that memory is, is gone so it's really important to talk to people and uh, you know yeah write down just write down the memories um, even if you don't do anything with them other than keep them for yourself absolutely well listen Catherine we have sadly come to the end of the podcast if anyone wants to check out Catherine's book choices you can go to my website www.paulcuddehy.com and every guest in the podcast has their own individual page where I just list the books I've chosen. But I have to say, Catherine, I've really enjoyed chatting to you about your favourite and not-so-favourite books. <laughs> it's been good to chat. Thanks for listening to the Read All About It podcast, and I'd love to hear what you thought about it. You can get in touch via Twitter at ReadAllAbout20, on Instagram at ReadAllAboutItPodcast, or you can send an email to ReadAllAboutIt at paulcuddehy.com. 
If you've enjoyed the podcast, subscribe, leave a review and spread the word. If you haven't enjoyed it, say nothing to anybody. But I do hope you can join me, Paul Cuddihy, next time on the Read All About It podcast. And in the meantime, keep reading. Keep reading.